Hello and welcome to the April 25th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Rami Kokratsky, and beside me is my colleague Anthony Bartaway. Today we'll be talking about the progress of the ongoing Russian war against Ukraine. It's been two months since the beginning of the Russian invasion on February 24th, and the war has moved on to its second phase. The Russians have retreated from the north of the country, and now they're recommitting themselves to take the Donbass. In the words of uh, the Russian military, their stated goal now is to create a land bridge all the way from the puppet authorities in Donetsk and Luhansk to the puppet republic of Transnistria in Moldova. Of course, to get there, they'll need to go through a heck of a lot of Ukrainian territory. And at the moment, it doesn't seem like they're making much progress. Anthony, you've been following the ebbs and flows of the combat situation on the ground. How's it looking for our guys and the Russians? Yeah, so I'll just do this the way we always have by separating this into regions and giving the overview of that. So within our last episode, we had talked about how in the north, the Russians had already retreated. They have abandoned the Kiev offensive. They abandoned the Chernihiv offensive and Sumy. And right now, just about everything north of Kharkiv has been liberated. So that provides a lot of relief on Ukrainian forces as well as the Ukrainian people. Kiev is now pretty much normal. I've actually moved back to the city and there's still some checkpoints. There's still some shortages in grocery stores, but as far as you can tell, everything is completely fine here. It's a beautiful day. It's well, I'm recording on Easter Sunday, actually. It's beautiful outside. People are going about their business and it seems like there's almost no war here. What's the safety situation like in Kiev? I mean, we're still getting air raid sirens here in Vienna. Um, has Kiev been hit by any new attacks or are any new attacks threatened? So I believe last week, what is time anymore? Uh, there was a strike on the Neptune, the plant that makes the Neptune missiles. These are the missiles that were used to uh, sink the Russian missile cruiser, the Moskva, the flagship of the Russian fleet in the Black Sea. The missile used to do that was made in a Kiev suburb, and it was the very hit very hard in order to destroy the capacity to create more of these missiles. So does that mean we're not going to be seeing any more sunken Russian uh, flagships, or at least ships? Well, I highly doubt the entire stockpile of Ukrainian's Neptune missile um, supply was in that factory, but it will be harder to produce more. But really, there's not that many ships. I'm sure we have enough missiles if to, if to need them, as well as some shipments from uh, various allies within the NATO states have also been shipping uh, various heavy weapons supplies. We'll get to that later. But I don't believe that this will be the end of Ukraine's anti-ship missile capabilities. The Oprah strategy, you get a missile, and you get a missile, and you get a missile. Just all the missiles, as many missiles are needed. It seems like most countries, we'll get to it, but most countries other than Germany are seem to be writing virtually a blank check as far as equipment is going right now, at least comparatively to how it used to be. So life in Kiev is resuming. We've seen um, a number of embassies reopen, including a couple of uh, CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization countries. This is the Russian kind of counterpart to NATO. Um, we've even seen them reopen a few of their embassies in Kiev. 
Um, so things in the capital are are kind of looking peachy. Is that right? As far as I can say, yes. Um, once you get outside the capital to the uh, recently liberated territories, it's very different. There's, of course, no fighting, but the devastation that was wrecked on these places it was very severe. And we'll get more into that. And, and when I talk about when I actually went out to some of these places, but right now the focus is on delivering aid to making sure that there's electricity, that there's water, that there's gas to get as much supply and normalcy back into these places as much as possible because people are moving back home. This can be difficult because Russians left many um, unexploded ordnance, mines, booby traps, things that could make the process of moving back in extraordinarily dangerous, but people are doing it nonetheless. I wish there would be a bit more caution in this way personally, but people want to go back home. Yeah, I believe um, the government, the Ukrainian government has said that out of the three million or so people that have fled Ukraine, about a million or so have returned already. So people are, um, it seems, eager to, to get back home. But let's move on to kind of the, the southern front of this war now, which is kind of all one big conglomeration the way I see it. Um, yeah, so, so let's talk about um, the south. Of course, we know that Kherson is still occupied. Um, there has been no amphibious landing uh, to Odessa. Um, Nikolaev has yet to be assaulted by like infantry. So what, what's the situation looking like on the Black Sea front? So on the Black Sea front, we're talking about the, the Moskva, the Russian flagship, which has meant that, you, that Russia has had to pull back a lot of its navy from closer to shore, pulling it back in many ways, all the way back to Sevastopol. Now there is still a threat that actually missiles can come, can come from as far as the Caspian Sea. The, the Navy-based uh, missile launchers there are capable of hitting Ukraine. But the further away they have to shoot means the more expensive and the rare the missile that they can use to hit it with. So as of right now, the Russians simply cannot get close enough to shore to threaten these amphibious assaults that were always kind of threatened but never followed through on because their ships would get blown up. Ukraine has that capability now. So that brings, so right now, uh, the, the, the siege of Mikolaev is long in the past. Odessa is essentially safe, again, except for these missile strikes, which there was one example uh, very within the past few days of, re- of release where a woman and her baby in Odessa on the Easter holiday were killed by this rocket that, that hit an apartment building. Um, it's very tragic the pictures, like the maternity pictures are very, have pulled at a lot of heartstrings. And when Zelensky, President Zelensky announced this, he was crying on screen. Like, there's been many people that died, but every once in a while, you just have to break, I, I, I guess. But right now, the western part of the Black Sea, Mikolaiv Odessa, has been relieved. The Ukrainian forces are slowly but surely working their way to Kherson, Kherson, which was captured by the Russians pretty early on in the war. The Ukrainian offensive is coming from west to east, from the Mikolaiv direction. They have There's essentially only one or two suburbs between the Ukrainian position and the city of Kherson itself at this point, as well as approaching from the north from the uh, Krivi Reed direction. And it hasn't been having too many changes, but it's very much been going in Ukraine's favor. 
villages have been taken back. They have been severely hitting Russian positions, specifically at Chernobyl Airport. Chernobyl Airport has become a bit of a running joke. Well, this is what the, I don't know, 15th time um, Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainians have struck Chernobyl Airport. It's been, it's been quite a number of times. You'd think at this point they would have stopped using Chernobyl Airport. Yeah, I think it was like the 16th, but who, who, who was even counting at this point? Yeah. If they park any, if Russia parks anything at Chernobyl Airport, including generals, they get destroyed. And this has been a long running trend down there. I have no idea. I don't, I don't know why they keep putting stuff in Chernobyl. It's going to get blown up. But they keep doing it, and generals keep going there. So we're building up to um, the battle for the liberation of Kherson, um, but I can't imagine that's going to be anything like a clean and quick operation. I mean, we're, we're talking about um, urban street-to-street fighting in, uh, a pretty major, uh, in a pretty major town. Yeah, and the geography of a bit of it is a bit interesting. Uh, the, it, the city itself essentially is attached to the Dnipro River Delta. So on the uh, western bank of the Dnipro is where the city itself is. And the eastern bank is a lot of wetlands, a lot of, uh, it's a delta. You, you, if you can picture that in your mind, lots of various branches of the river that are hard to navigate around. On the eastern bank, there will be the cities of, say, Novokokovka. And that will, it's not as hard of a target as Kherson itself, but if Ukraine is able to take it, it will be extraordinarily difficult for Russia to continue its occupation of Kherson because that's the way in, essentially. There's the road from Crimea into Kherson, but it's not the best road in the world. There's a lot of problems with transit in the area. So without that, uh, transit connection to Nova Hokovka, it would be hard for them to resupply. And this is in the backdrop of Russia attempting to establish a quote-unquote Kherson uh, People's Republic, kind of what they did with uh, Donbass at the beginning of the war. That's another puppet authority. Yes, a attempted puppet authority. I believe actually a few weeks back, um, there were rumors that Putin had punished the FSB operative in charge of establishing um, this puppet authority due to their failure in doing so, because it seems um, the grand, grand majority of um, Harrison residents wanted nothing to do with this puppet authority and had uh, and were um, resisting or refusing to cooperate with the Russians. Yeah, there's been a few attempts at it, uh, They, but they've largely been frustrated by the fact that every time they tried to bring some kind of pro-Russian demonstration, however, to have a spontaneous declaration of Kherson independence, it's frustrated by a massive pro-Ukrainian counter-protest. They, it, it just doesn't work out for them. But from what I understand, the first week of next month will be a referendum where people can vote over the course of several days. Well, you say vote. Vote, by which I mean they're, they're just going to say they won. I don't think yeah, I mean, there's, there's not, there's not gonna be it's not exactly clean, a, a clean election or anything, but they're <laughs> going to try to establish this Harrison People's Republic. I think they're just going to go for it at this point. They've attempted to do the thing where they have the look of legitimacy. And just from my feeling, <coughs> but just from my feeling of what's happening, I think they're just going to go for it no matter what. They've already established their physical presence very strongly. They've 
um, rebuilt a lot of the old Soviet monuments, the Lenin statues, things like that, in order to kind of create the aesthetic facts of the ground. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to put it, of Herson being a... Maybe it looks Soviet enough, maybe people will believe me. I don't know. I think eh, they're, they're manifesting. <laughs> they're, they're manifesting it into being. Well, bad luck to them. Um, before we leave the Black Sea front, I did just want to say a couple of words about the um, Moskva, the flagship that was sunk. Um, and uh, I'm sure most of our listeners probably already know the story. Um, but it bears repeating. We didn't cover the Moscow Moscow on our last episode, right? Did we? No, that are that happened in between our last release. So a quick recap for those little listeners who may not be aware of what the Moscow was. The Moscow is an Atlant class uh, guided missile cruiser. It was the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet and was notably the warship that demanded the surrender of the Ukrainian border guard outpost on uh, Snake Island in the Black Sea. And that's where the famous phrase, Russian worship, go fuck yourself, comes from. Is exactly um, that, uh, that border guard outpost. What? The warship in question being told to fuck itself. Yes. Uh, the Masa was the warship in question being told to fuck itself. Which um, we've now, it now has, of course, with a little help from uh, Ukrainian munitions. Despite this happening nearly two weeks ago at this rate, um, we still don't know the total losses of the Moskva. Um, on paper, it has a crew complement of 510. Um, there have been rumors that Turkish soldiers rescued 50. The official Russian numbers is something like 20-something, um, like one killed 20-something sailors missing in action. Their Ukrainian intelligence says that relatives of the sailors are unable to account for about 300 of the crew complement. So the numbers are all over the place, and we have actually no, no real idea of how many people Russia lost um, due to the sinking of Moscow. It was on fire for quite a bit. It was, it was hit overnight, and it was still on fire when dawn broke. So there was time to get people off, but again, we have no idea how long <laughs> um, that or we have no idea how many people were actually saved versus drowned, um, though it obviously has been quite a number of them. And it's hard to overstate the moral victory that Ukraine has achieved. I mean, the Moscow is literally named after Moscow. It is literally the flagship. Um, and it has, um, to a great extent, invigorated Ukrainian resistance while um, demoralizing the Russians in their fruitless attempts to conquer us. Yeah, it was a very serious victory, um, and, and importantly, it means that the coast cannot be threatened anymore to any serious extent. Not that it so much was. Uh, the Russians never followed through on its amphibious attack that they were talking about, but still, it's nice to know that they're kept at, at long arm's reach. And from a military standpoint, um, the Moscow was rumored to not actually be carrying cruise missiles on board, but instead was being used as a mobile anti-air platform. Um, it had quite a bit of air, um, anti-air missiles and anti-air interference, as well as EM um, jamming gear. So the fact that it is no longer there to cover for the rest of the fleet means the Russians basically need to keep um, the remnants of their fleet around Sevastopol. And of course, they can still hit from um, Sevastopol, their range is um, pretty good in that regard, uh, but they need to kind of stay out of this bubble of Neptune missiles, which is about 300 kilometers. 
is the max operational range for a Neptune. Um, and Sevastopol is basically right outside that range. Um, but of course, obviously, they're going to be quite cautious about heading um, heading any closer. Yeah, I think just on my, you know, quick math on it, it's the Crimean city of Yevpetoria is basically the, the, the furthest extent of it. And that is just a short, very, it's the next city on the coast from Sevastopol and quite close to Simferopol as well. So these Neptune missiles can pretty much, they, these, these ships essentially cannot um, go too much further than their home ports on that side of the Black Sea anyway. The Azov Sea, of course, is still under complete command of Russian forces. There's no two ways about that. But the, um, the, the, the other side of Crimea, the, the side next to uh, Odessa and Mikolaev, the western side, has largely been secured because of this. All right. So with that said, let's now move on to kind of what experts are calling the pivotal battle of this war. Um, the thing that will kind of decide the scope and scale of Ukrainian victory or um, will conversely allow the Russians to proceed unimpeded um, deep into Ukrainian territory. And this is the battle for Donbass. So the contact line um, that has held for um, nigh on eight years is once again the flashpoint of all-out war. Um, and not only Russians are advancing from basically uh, the north, east, and south, uh, they're attempting to encircle the uh, Joint Forces Operation Zone, uh, which is what the Ukrainian positions on the contact line in the Donbass are called. Um, and experts say that they're trying to actually even achieve a double encirclement. Um, but they have not made that much progress given the amount of forces that they have arranged. Um, it's quite a number of BTGs, I think. I want to say 20, I don't, but the Russians have uh, quite a number of their battalion tactical groups um, in the area, uh, but they have not been moving as swiftly as, of course, they would hope. Um, it took them nigh on a month simply to take the pretty small um, Donbass town of Izum, and they have quite a few more to go through. Um, Rubizhne and Papasna are the two big kind of roadblocks for the Russian military at the moment. And of course, in Mariupol, the situation is incredibly dire, but the Azovstal plant is still being, I wouldn't say held, um, it is still full of Ukrainian troops, um, specifically the Azov regiment, but the... It's a last stand type of situation there at the moment. It's the last stand, exactly. Um, reports say that the above ground infrastructure of the plant has been reduced to rubble, and the Russians effectively control um, the entire rest of the territory of the city. However, um, the fact that Azovstal has not technically fallen does mean that quite a number of uh, Russian forces are still in Mariupol, unable to uh, link up with this encirclement plan. Yeah, the Ukrainian soldiers there are still operating essentially as insurgents or guerrilla fighters. So at the moment, as, um, this, uh, this massive um, metallurgical plant, Azovstal, it is, I've been to Mariupol and it is intimidatingly large. Uh, I believe someone said that it's roughly the size of Venice, uh, the traditional city of Venice. So it is, uh, it's a scary thing to try and take. It is built to withstand nuclear war. 
There are many levels underneath it of various tunnels and warehouses and storage. It is, if Russia tried to storm it, they would not be able to just, you know, artillery barrage their way in. It is um, basically a massive cavern full of soldiers that will probably be booby-trapped. So any attempt to actually take it would result in extraordinarily high casualties on the Russian side, which is, seems like they don't really want to do that. It was um, Putin reportedly even gave the order to essentially leave it alone and move on and to let the... So they've continued to shell the, the plant itself. To shell it, yes. But essentially um, starve them out while hitting them with artillery rather than trying to storm it. And this is, a, of course, a horrifying situation for both the soldiers to be in and the 1,000 or so civilians who are down there with them. But it also means that Russia can't just say they took the city and can move on because they'll still have this massive supply of soldiers who at any point can sally out in the dark of night, um, pull up some positions. And they did reportedly destroy the headquarters of the Kedorovsi in Mariupol pretty recently. So they're still very combat effective, just, you know, if, 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 it, if the city cannot be relieved soon, I don't see them surviving this. I mean, we've already gotten reports of at least twenty to 22,000 civilian casualties in Mariupol. Um, I personally think that number is significantly higher uh, due to the fact that Mariupol was a rather large and thriving city prior to the war. And now it is more or less rubble. Um, there are zero un undamaged structures left in the city. Um, they haven't had power, water, or gas, any, any essential utilities for six to eight weeks at this point. Um, and there has never been a stable humanitarian corridor for a, a orderly evacuation into the city. The best that um, the residents of Mariupol have had offered to them is a retreat to Russia, uh, which uh, quite a number of uh, Ukrainians are reported to have been kidnapped, abducted basically um, by the Russians. Uh, the um, Ukrainian parliament uh, is estimating a little over half a million. The numbers may be higher, maybe lower, but um, that's the number that they're going with. And obviously, once they're in Russia, we have um, not a lot of information on what is happening to Ukrainian cities, uh, citizens in Russia. Um, some of them are being sent to camps. Some of them are being given Russian passports and being just made Russian. Um, and others, we, we have no idea. But given that we have seen what the Russians have done in their eight years of occupation of Donetsk and Luhansk. And we've heard the stories of the torture camp at Izolatsi is the famous one. So um, I am not optimistic for the chances of Ukrainians in Russia. Yeah, I've seen reports of them being sent to the Far East, a lot of them being sent to the Far East. I've seen Kabarovsk, the various former Gulag towns that were in Siberia and the North and the Far East. They're being scattered all over the Russian Federation, and the idea of being able to track everyone down after the war seems like it will be a very daunting task. I assume many of them will be dead by the time that this will be able to happen as well. So the I so yes, I agree. I don't think we understand the full scope of the loss of human life in Mariupol, and people who are not dead now could very easily be found in basically a death camp in Russia after the war. 
Yeah, but again, we we just don't know. Um, the Russian government obviously isn't saying. Their propagandists have recently um, switched to the narrative. I'm sure a lot of them actually do wholeheartedly believe in that the division of Russia and Ukraine um, after the fall of the Soviet Union was akin to the division of East and West Germany. Um, so they have completely given up on any on holding up any semblance that Ukraine exists or Ukrainians exist. Um, these are all just quote unquote Russian citizens to them. So why should they keep track of what they're citizens? I'm sure is the argument that they'll make. Um, I mean, in, in the end, it just kind of reinforces the Ukrainian belief that there is no negotiated solution to this war. There is only military defeat or the Russians on the battlefield. That's yes, an absolutely existential struggle. And Mariupol is like one case of why that's true. But elsewhere on that front, yeah, we talked about um, Izum. So that's the northern extent of this. They have been trying to go back and forth on the various villages surrounding Izum. A lot of the times Russia will will take a town, then Ukraine will take it back, then Russia will take it back. I've seen this happen a few times, especially in the eastern stretches of Izum. So it's really a game of inches. And even though Russia was supposed to have been able to, you know, take all of its various forces that was able to withdraw from Sumy from Kiev and swing them down to Izum, punch through the Ukrainian forces, and it just hasn't happened yet. The gains have been very, very modest and very, very costly and often reversible. Yeah, we're looking at um, a lot of back and forth, but at the same time, the Ukrainian defenders are motivated, well-equipped, and fighting <laughs> basically for the future of our country, while the Russian soldiers, a lot of them, have been just thrown from one war front to another um, with maybe a week at maximum to resupply and relax and reform um, a lot of the completely depleted units um, from the north are just being shoved into new formations with no care for who these people are, who their new comrades are that they're supposed to fight and die against. Um, basically, the, the cohesion of their military is very low. Their morale is almost zero at this point, I would say. Um, and there's not a real good reason for why they're here. They're, they're, there is very little ideological backing, even if they do believe that Ukraine is a part of Russia. I think the soldier uh, seeing this kind of resistance would probably be wondering, well, just fucking let them have their land at this point. Yeah, this is in the middle of the draft season in, in Russia. People are being called up for mandatory military service, um, along with fast recruitment drives. But from there, it takes a minimum of two months to turn a recruit or a conscript into a combat effective soldier. And they don't have two months to spare. Clock's really ticking down on uh, how long Russia can be combat offensive, especially if they want to have any kind of victory by you know, victory day, May 9th, which is um, their goal essentially is that May 9th is the victory in World War II day, and they want to have something to show for it so they can have, you know, their own victory against, you know, the current Nazis or however they want to um, portray it as. And so those this is, for example, um, Anthony, why you said that they're going to go ahead and just declare their um, Hirson People's Republics or whatever. That's um, probably what's going to happen. Over the course be. of the next week, because they need, they need to have some results to show dear leaders. 
Yeah, they're going to say that Mariupol is now now a part of the Donetsk People's Republic. They're going to say that Kherson is now a People's Republic. And I haven't ha- heard as much from Zaporizhia, but they'll probably do the same thing with Melitopol, even if it's on a, you know, a, just a one day, one day time frame just to get it in under the wire, just so they have something to show. So these, yeah, these conscripts are not going to be able to get there in time. And when they do, they're, they're conscripts. Like, that's not a good thing. They're going to die in droves. I mean, that's what we've been seeing um, in the puppet authorities in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, we've heard really just quite horrifying stories of uh, military recruiters dragging people out from their places of work, from their apartments, from restaurants. Um, there's one story of the Donetsk Philharmonic Orchestra all being mobilized. Um, they were invited to play in a recruitment office um, as a pretext. And once they got there, they were all mobilized. They were thrown into Mariupol and they all died because these people are given no training, maybe a green jacket and maybe a gun. Um, and even that's not guaranteed. And obviously they die basically instantly um, when they encounter combat. Uh, and these conscripts, while they may get a little bit more training and they'll probably get a gun with real ammo in it, um, it's unlikely that their fate will be significantly improved, um, to that Philharmonica Orchestra. Yeah. We talked a bit about this with Kirill, uh, uh, two or so episodes back where he was explaining to us how essentially these conscripts from the Ukrainian territories, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk have essentially been used as pure cannon fodder to see to see where the weaknesses in the Ukrainian lion are which is and then just told to to run forward like it actually is one of these bad world war 2 movies it's the zap brannigan uh yes the zap brannigan approach the, the, to warfare zap brannigan warfare warfare strategy i threw men enough i threw enough men at them till their kill counter is overloaded and reset Essentially, that's that seems to be what they're doing. Uh, less so with the Russian conscripts, but definitely with the conscripts from Donetsk and Luhansk. And reportedly, they have been pulling conscripts from Kherson region as well in Zaporizhia region, where these men are like. There's not even like a history of as short as this history was eight years. At least in Donetsk, there was some semblance of Russian authority for that time, for people to maybe attach themselves to but with herson and zaporizhia russians show up next day throw them into the meat grinder i suppose and i mean it goes without saying that these are all incredibly incredibly evil war crimes and crimes against humanity i mean yeah it's against the geneva conventions explicitly but i don't need there's there's nothing they just need bodies and even if those bodies will last minutes on the battlefield, which is why these Russian casualty rates have been so extraordinarily high. And a lot of that is because, well, one, they're not counting these Ukrainian conscripts as Russian soldiers. So when they die, they don't have to report them even within their fudged numbers as being part of the Russian death count because they're a part of you know, Donetsk, um, Luhansk. That's their kill count. It's a different thing. It's not the Russian military, according to them. So it's a different way to count to fudge the numbers with. Let's talk about Kharkiv, Anthony, because that's um, one of the big focuses um, that I've been hearing. I, I know 
um, quite a number of military guys who have been sent to Kharkiv in the last few weeks to help bolster the defenses there. Um, and Kharkiv is uh, a major city. I think it's the country's second, the second largest. City. It's the second largest city um, in the country, yeah. So the former capital at one point. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge target. Um, and it's managed to withstand these two months. But what are we what are we seeing now with this new push? I mean, if the Russians can take Kharkiv, obviously it'll give them a far better position to to sell the Donbass from. Um, but if they can't, what changes? Yeah. So with Kharkiv, it was never surrounded like Sumy was. Even in the worst of times, there was always a way into the city, and the siege was never quite so severe. Although, of course, it has taken extremely heavy hits from uh, artillery strikes and rocket strikes. Much of the, the town center, much of the city has been affected. Many people have died. Large parts of the city have been destroyed. But they never came close to taking it. There were some incursions by uh, Russian Spetsnaz infantry to try to take some of the city, but it never worked out. And right now, there is a large counteroffensive to retake the area around Kharkiv by the Ukrainian forces. Now, probably the most important of this was Chuyuhiv, which is a suburb that kind of commands a major supply line from the Russian bases within Russia itself with their forward positions in, in the Donbass. The city of Belhorod, Belhorod is the main staging point within the Russian Federation and Shuyuhiv, it without being able to control that, it makes logistics more complicated, essentially. Uh, recently, they have, uh, Ukrainian forces have pushed almost to the border in the area north of, of Kharkiv. Just, just as a recording, they took several villages along the highway between Kharkiv and Russia. So slowly but surely, they are retaking the Kharkiv region everything that Russia was able to take in order to siege Kharkiv. Which leads that, that Russia will have to go south to bypass the city, which makes their job much more difficult. Uh, Kharkiv is a very large city, very militarized city at this point, which means that Ukrainian forces can attack from there. It is a, um, it's a strong point, a command node, a logistics node that Russia can't ignore, but they can't take. So they have to avoid it. And without the ability to hold on to the Kharkiv countryside, it means that this, like, is, um, I'll say Izum is not so far away from Kharkiv, from Shuyuhiv. The MO3 highway is what leads to it. And if Ukraine is able to push further and further along this highway, it means that the Russian salient leading down to Izum will be under, under assault. Basically, if Ukraine can encircle the encirclement, then that makes the fighting in Donbass far, far easier. But at the moment, isn't a lot of Kharkiv uh, Oblast like, occupied? Um, I saw that just a report the other day um, of Russians setting up like occupation authorities um, in various regions around, um, around Kharkiv itself. Yes, yeah, so these, uh, the Russians still command a lot of the area to the north and east of Kharkiv City. And of course, they're behaving the same way there as they are everywhere else, setting up these collaborationist and otherwise occupation authorities. But they're they're losing more and more ground there. They are having a very difficult. They they seem not to be prioritizing 
the area directly around Kharkiv in order to um, go around it, essentially, because they can't take it. They have to go around it. And the more Ukrainian forces were relieved from the northern front to be sent down to Kharkiv, the more Ukrainian forces are there in order to retake these areas. And like I said, by retaking these areas, if they can retake enough of it, they'll be able to cut off the supply lines, the Donbass front, they'll be able to cut off the approaches from Russia's major, major staging areas. So Kharkiv Oblast is being liberated slowly, but surely, and it'll be, it, it appears that this will be the main way that Ukraine fights back on the Donbass front to try to, like I said, encircle the encircle. So Anthony, uh, last week, you took a trip down to my in-law's village with my wife um, to see what the situation was like in um, Bravery region, which is a suburb uh, on the left bank of Dnipro um, from Kiev, which was occupied by the Russians for quite a while. It was uh, directly basically on the highway that left uh, that went from Sumy to Kiev. And when they wanted to assault Kiev, um, they were using that highway as, uh, as one of their routes um, to the capital. So um, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about what you've seen, who you talked to, and what the situation there um, like is now, considering that they've been liberated um, for, for a number of weeks now? Yeah, I'd say the big difference between... Uh, the Bouvery region and what more people may have heard of on the western side of the city, Bucha, Hostomel, those places, is that within Bucha, Hostomel, and the salient reaching down from Belarus, they were embedded much more deeply. So they were they had a much stronger presence in each of these towns on the western side, whereas on the eastern side it was much more fluid. It was much more based on sending patrols around to kind of keep everyone pacified, to uh, find undesirables who may be fighting against the Russians, to the point where only some of these towns were actually completely occupied the whole time. So the first one I went to was Zelicia. Zelicia, really, really tiny, but it is on the highway that leads up to Chernihiv. And this highway was extraordinarily important because it leads from Chernihiv up to Belarus. And it's the way that Russia was able to bypass Chernihiv and try to attack the, we call it the left bank of Kiev, the part that's on the eastern side of the river. So Zelisa, very, very tiny. Um, I believe I saw that it only has a population of, of a pre-war population of about 600. And it was used as the forward command post in that part of the region. Uh, reportedly, some a flag officer was stationed there at one point. And the first, the first impression you get of it was just the Russian military vehicles on the road that were completely destroyed. Um, you may have seen many pictures of destroyed Russian tanks at this point, where if they're hit, the turret pops off. One of them was a tank that on, was on one side of the highway, destroyed the turret went all the way to the other side of the highway crashed into the parking lot of a gas station and embedded into the the cement it yeah it, oh, wow. I, I guess yeah no way to kind of connect any pictures of this but i'll throw them up on my twitter i guess uh yeah it is 
kind of funny in that way. The one that kind of lightened the mood a little bit, even though the rest of that trip was uh, very gruesome. We went to, well, the, the first place we went, we ran in as we were looking at one of these destroyed tanks, a two local guys pulled up an uncle and his nephew, like adult uncle and adult nephew. Um, they said that they had only just buried his mother, his one of theirs, one of theirs mother, the other one's sister. Uh, they had only just buried her today. Well, not today, today, but when we were there today and wanted us, wanted to show us, um, their, the home that was destroyed. She was sitting in the kitchen next to the stove because it was a cold winter night and most of the heating didn't work, but the stove still worked. So that was how she was able to keep, keep alive. She did not want to leave the, the, the house because she was very elderly. She didn't think she could handle the trip. She had to stay back with the dog and the chickens and the land and the farm to make sure everything's working. But one night, like when she is sitting next to the stove, a missile came through, an artillery shell came through the roof and hit her almost directly. Um, reportedly, her head was in the hallway next in the next room. Um, they pointed out where this was. The blood stain was still there, still bits of hair, but they buried her once um, just somewhere. Uh, re- un- un- uninterred her, I believe is the word for a proper like inspection. Um, uh, had the coroner look at her proof of the crimes essentially. And then they re- reburied her. Um, one part that got to me actually was that her bag of yarn was still on the floor. My, my grandma does a lot of you no know, sewing and crocheting and all that. So I just saw something. I put myself in that in, in his shoes for a second there because of that. The um, the house, uh, it was like half the house. I think the house is salvageable, but like part of it too was she wanted to protect the chickens, and, and there was one artillery crater with a chicken in the middle of it. All the chickens were killed. There was a blackbird sitting in a tree, just. And the shockwave killed it. So the entire backyard was filled with dead animals. And the dog. The dog was killed too. Um, at one point, the older, the uncle, he said that he was a collector of World War II memorabilia. And we noticed this because he had like an old World War II era, era like car as like a decoration essentially in the backyard. And he wanted to show us, you know, a German shell that had landed in the nearby area. And like, Got another picture of him, you know, holding up, you know, same as, as it used to be as it is now. It war is always the same and it is always destroying things. But from there, uh, we were pointed to, it's hard to call it like a town center because it's such a tiny village, but where the market would, would, would have been where the bus station was. And there was a group of old women there who had kind of turned it into a bit of a shelter, a, a gathering point, essentially, and you know, dropped off some, some food and supplies, and she took us to her, her house next door. And this house was used as one of the um, command posts in the village. A group of soldiers stayed there. Um, a lot of them were buriats, which was one thing that's interesting 
part of this war is that a lot of these soldiers on the northern front were uh, of uh, ethnic Burat, a kind of a, related to Mongol uh, ethnic group, because the northern war was largely waged by elements of the far eastern part of the Russian army. So a lot of uh, minorities from that direction were there. But she was saying how the Russians and the Burats were stationed at her her house which was pretty big like the garden was looked pretty nice <laughs> uh, at least it would have been but it had been uh turned into trench works fortifications that her grandson was forced to build which again war crime you cannot use prisoner labor in order to aid your own war efforts you can use prisoner labor to do like standard uh infrastructure or whatever builds but you can't use it you can't force them to help you militarily, but they did. And this family, it, her, her husband was a Chernobyl liquidator. A liquidator were the people who cleaned up after the Chernobyl disaster so it would not hurt the rest of the world and to contain the radioactivity. He, was, he did three tours there, which is actually quite high. Like, you're not supposed to be there that long, but he was. Which caused him to have severe lung cancer. He had to get lar large parts of his lungs removed. So he was... Um, he was on the dole essentially. He he was he spent his life after that point on government assistance, and he needed his wife to take care of him. And in these conditions, he, um, the the one so the one we talked to, her husband, their great grandkids, they had to, and some others were forced to live in this tiny cellar for two weeks while the Russian soldiers were living on the the surface. And from what I understand, it was very cramped. Um, his health took a downturn, though, from what I understand, he did survive, as did everyone. Apparently, no one in the family was killed, I believe, or at least they did not offer up the information if they were. But that's just, you know, another story from this tiny little village. Uh, we also went to other places. We went to, um, went past Rudnia, which was largely untouched, surprisingly which kind of pointed out how completely variable this whole situation was. Um, uh, Shevchenkova was almost completely destroyed. So one village untouched, next village, five minute drive down the road, leveled. And in this town, a basement of one of the houses was used as an execution chamber. They found something like 20 bodies there or something. So... If you're hearing about these horror stories from Bucha, from Hostomel, that's happened literally everywhere. Like, you can't just, so Bucha has kind of become the shorthand for the genocide, for these horrible war crimes. But just keep in mind, everywhere was going through the same situation to various degrees of severity, but none were completely spared. Uh, next, we went to Svetilna which was your in-law's village. And if they've been following you on Twitter, which I highly recommend, uh, you, they, our listeners might have heard their story before. Their house was uh, hit with an artillery shell. Um, the greenhouse was completely destroyed. Uh, the soldiers went through the house. They stole anything that they could really sell, anything expensive, any electronics. They just ripped open cabinets that weren't even locked. They smashed Christmas ornaments on the ground. No good reason, just petty cruelty, just being complete assholes, like not even assholes for any kind of benefit, just just destroys things. <sighs> but there was a 
artillery emplacement outside of on like the the extremity of the town the outskirts and it looked like the ukrainians completely destroyed it completely annihilated it big crater in the ground russian artillery pieces that were turned into absolute scrap so the ukrainians got back to them in some way i suppose who knows if the soldiers that sacked the house made it out alive even i can only hope oh, yeah yeah and then from there we went to Kolesnosti, which is a smaller town outside of it that can only be approached by a paved road from one direction over a bridge that was destroyed. So the difficulty of getting to this town kind of spared it the worst of the violence. There wasn't a permanent military Russian presence there. They just patrolled it like a couple times a day. And when they did that, they would fire their guns in the air, shoot at cars, shoot up fences. By the time we got there, they had repaired most of the damage, actually. So I assume it wasn't so bad. Like I pointed out, oh, I don't see any bullet holes. And like, oh, that's because we already fixed them. Uh, but it also meant that they have not, because they're so far out of the way, another problem that has popped up, as was the case with Silesia, they hadn't received any aid yet either. In the weeks post-liberation, they hadn't received food aid. They hadn't received anything, really. Um, they had, according to them, they approached the brewery authorities in charge of, of such things, and they said they weren't on a list, which made no sense to me. You'd think the list of cities to aid would just be a list of cities that exist, but for what out, one reason or another, they fell through the bureaucratic cracks, and I, that's something I think we really need to research more fully to find out how this happens and how to um, go around that problem. But yeah, then then we came back through Boholdiv, which is something like the the capital of the regional authority, uh, Kormata, and it was also hit pretty bad. Um, they looked like the Russians had turned the local school into a major base. There were several destroyed tanks around, several destroyed Russian tanks surrounding it, and then back into the city. That was a, that was the the day trip between those areas, and. You know, I saw a lot of destroyed houses. I saw people moving back into them, trying, including some where the house was half destroyed, but there's still someone living in it. Um, whether they moved back or never left, I don't know. But they were cleaning up the scrap in the yard. They were, you know, sweeping the street in the in the pathways of any rubble. And people are just trying to go back to how things were. And it will take a long, long time and a lot of money in order to allow them to do that. So as our dear listeners can see, um, or hear in this case, just because the Russians have left, doesn't, the problems are over. And in a lot of cases, it means that the problems are just beginning. Um, our family has no idea how we're going to repair their house. Um, <laughs> so this would probably be, so this would probably be an apropos time to plug our Patreon. Um, if you'd like to support me and my family and our work in reporting here in Ukraine in general, um, please feel free to uh, sign up for our Patreon and find the link in the description to the podcast and uh, become a member, one of our patrons. Uh, we can't promise much except for our semi-regular updates, <laughs> um, but we can promise that we will continue to bring you um, the latest news from Ukraine region, of course, covering um, the war no matter what happens.
hopefully we'll try to get out and see other parts. This was a very small loop I did. Ultimately, I would like to get up to Chernihiv maybe. Um, Sumi seems to be very underreported and needs people boots on the ground to uh, record those stories. So Patreon, uh, not it. It feels kind of odd to say please money, but please money. There, these trips can be expensive. They require. I'm I'm not going to go anywhere without um, food aid or anything like that on hand. So Patreon will also be going towards aid in some ways as well, um, in large, to a large extent. So yes, if any support, it would be very much appreciated. So that was our two month anniversary of the war episode of Ukraine without hype. We talked about where the war is standing and we talked about the aftermath of it. War doesn't end just because the enemy soldiers are gone. Larger effort to rebuild, to restore the lives of people who still have them, which is not everyone, unfortunately. That effort is only just beginning. But thank you so very, very much for listening to us. Our, please go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash ukrainewithouthype if you would like to join us. And very special thanks to the people that have. We appreciate everyone's uh, support, whether monetary or giving us feedback. So on that, on that, I would like to read off our $5 a month Patreons and above. So thank you very much to Abir, Amea, Big Rob, Brianna Rhoda, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Ostrovsky, Daniel Wall, Deborah Lee, Devra Grazer, Eric, Found Gold, George, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, Jennifer Jarvis, Justin Devendorf, Kevin Corpy, Kristen Swanland, Laura De Leon, Laura Lacari, Evgenia, Melissa Koselko, Mike Rones, Mike Lee Whiplash, Noam Hart, Patricia George, Trisha Spurls, Rachel Haidu, Rajesh, Randy McNerlin, Sanjay, Scott Gengris, Stephen Greenberg, Key Bart, Theo, Vic, and Will Stevens. So thank you again for all of our supporters. Thank you very much for listening. It's important to give all of our attention to Ukraine right now, to give our support, our love, our heavy weaponry would be very much appreciated. So until next time, Slava Ukraini. Please.